There's crispy, and then there's crispy, er. Try our new and improved Tyson crispy chicken strips. Crispy just got crispy, er. Welcome to HBCU 468, brought to you by ESPN's The Undefeated. This weekly podcast looks at life inside and outside of sports from the unique perspective of the Roden Fellows. Handpicked students from six historically black colleges and universities. They're young, they're smart, and they are living one of the most unique experiences in American higher education. I'm Bill Roden, and here are this week's Roden Fellows. Hello, everyone. My name is Whitney Bronson. I'm a senior journalism major from Hampton University. Hi, all. I'm Arthur Cribbs from Los Angeles. I'm a junior journalism major at Howard University in Washington, D.C. Hi, everybody. I'm Nathan Easington, a senior journalism major and history minor from Evanston, Illinois. Uh, We've got a great lineup today. The NFL season is just around the corner, and teams are not only preparing for the gridiron, but also how to address what has been called the new civil rights movement in sports. Colin Kaepernick settled his grievance with the NFL last year, but he's still not employed by any team. And at least three NFL players are expected to keep kneeling during the national anthem. Those three are Carolina Panthers safety Eric Reed, Miami Dolphins wide receiver Kenny Stills, and the Dolphins' Albert Wilson. And Jay-Z recently said that We've moved past kneeling and need to focus on actual items. wonder what that means. And that's just the NFL. We've also got players on the U.S. Uh, on the US women's national soccer team, players in the NBA and the WNBA, pushing for equality and justice. Uh, much of the activism and protests in sports we hear about and cover is led by players, but there are also organizations that use sports to address social issues and injustices through sports. One such organization is the Ross Initiative in Sports for Equality, most commonly known as RISE. RISE works with sports leagues, athletes, educators, media networks, and others to promote understanding, respect, and equality. And we're very fortunate to have CEO of RISE, Diane Billings Burford, in the studio with us. Aha! Diane, welcome to the show. Got you here. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. No, it's really great having you. We we've uh, seen each other around. We yes. we're down at the uh, in a, at, at the Super Bowl. So um, let's get right into it. How were you attracted to Rise? And sort of what was your yeah? What led you? Uh, what led you to join Rise? What attracted you to Rise? And uh, um, sort of where were you before? Where did you come to the Rise from? Yeah, I. I came to Rise from Time Warner right mm-hmm. before it became Warner Media. And I had come to Warner Media from the government. I worked with Michael Bloomberg, okay. loved both, um, and really felt like, especially after, quite honestly, the election of Donald Trump, mm-hmm. that my next step, my next way to have an impact during this time was probably going to be in the not for profit sector. I was kind of going through with that and looking at different positions coming. And uh, I have a friend, mutual friend, who is general counsel at the Miami Dolphins. Um, And so uh, Miles said, hey, I think you should look at this Mm. position. And so I actually ended up looking at the position that way. But what did you know 
of the NFL. I mean, I, I don't know if you're a football fan, all that kind of stuff, but going into that, uh, well, mm-hmm. first of all, what was it about Trump's election mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. got you doing soul searching? Um, I posted on Facebook uh, before I went to sleep the, the night of the election that Trump is not the problem. He's a manifestation of the problem. And, and, I, and I still think that. And I, and I think that I was very aware that when it comes to issues of race and class and really this concept of the common good over self-interest, I was concerned about where we are as a country. And so that's where my head was. Um, and I, I, I felt like I was impacting that at Time Warner. I was funding the arts, diverse artists. And I, I think some great stories were coming out of that. But I, I felt like it was more time for me. To, it was time for me to do some more direct work. Mm. Did you feel, um, you know, just full disclosure, the NFL through Troy Vincent mm-hmm. does a lot with the Roden Fellows. It's a fellowship yes. that's in my name but the NFL is I mean yeah I say Troy Vincent yes but it's NFL right (laughs) and so you know when you start getting into these alliances and we'll get into this later on Mm -hmm. but how much did you know about the NFL I mean a lot of the owners support the president yes and all so you know for all of us and we were all you know big people and black folks when you when you begin to get into these affiliations with these organizations you kind of have to have your eyes open and you just have to almost pragmatically Weigh things. So, what was your process of, of weighing like when you jumped into mm-hmm. uh, not so much rise, but when you were going to get this allegiance with the NFL? So, um, to take a step back during my interview process, one of the questions that the the the, the um, hiring group of board members asked me, they said, "Diane, you have all this experience, but we what what would you say if we said our concern was how much do you understand this sports space?" And so to answer your question, I really had quite a lot to learn about the sports industry. And my answer to them was, if your new CEO is going to have any learning curve, there can't be one that you guys are better equipped to help with, right? If you're talking about the commissioners of every league, like that's the one you want us to, that's the one you want your CEO to have. So I actually had quite a bit to learn about the sports industry, I love sports. My kids are athletes. My husband's an athlete. I, you know, but that's very different. Being a fan is very different than understanding the business of it. Now, that being said, the more that I learned about all of the leagues, including the NFL, the more I realized, in truth, they they are just businesses, right? It, it is actually not that much different. We we have the illusion of them being different because the product looks different. The entertainment, the sport looks different. But they're built like businesses. Right. So the reality is, listen, I just come from Tom Warner. There were probably plenty of executives. I know plenty of executives that uh, were Republican. I know, you know, some of the lawyers, one of the lawyers at Tom Warner clerked for Justice Scalia, mm. right? Having to interact with um, with individuals that have a different mindset and, and maybe more conservative and, and, and maybe we didn't agree. Actually, that part wasn't anything that I was new to. And, and I think one of the things RISE seeks to do is get more people in that situation. Part of our challenge is more of, a, more of us are not constantly interacting with people that think and look and feel and move differently than we do. And we have to. You've been CEO of Rise for about a 
a year. So what are some accomplishments that you are most proud of in this moment? And what have been some of your greatest challenges? Wow. So thank you for that question, Whitney. That's a big one. That that might be the podcast. Um, <laughs> but let me try to, I'm going to try to package that. Um, I, I actually would say that two of my greatest accomplishments in the role so far, I think, are less visible externally. And so one is we have a really increased level of board engagement. I've got to tell you that we have gotten more things accomplished. We've become more mission-focused. And a lot of that has been that our board members have really stepped up um, and really given their opinions, pushed back when they should push back, support when they should support. And so board engagement has been a, a real point of success for me at, from my perspective. And then the other thing is I actually will say our, our team and our staff, we have become, I think, again, more focused, more efficient, more passionate, um, more committed to what we're doing. Um, and, and, and being able to lead that and develop that in our team, I'm, I'm super proud of that. And then it's hard for me to point to one thing programmatically, but I will say this, someplace during this year, we have been called upon more to lead some critical conversations with adults. Mm. And I consider that to be a real marker of success. This is a, these are hard conversations to have. And I think I see the leagues and other organizations having trust in us and believing that, you know, we will help them through these difficult conversations so that we can see real outcomes. Which, which, which adults? And, and, and we have hard conversations, specifically, what, what, like who, which, which adults and, and what have been the nature of those hard conversations? Um, I think a great example is, you know, hats off to uh, Kim Davis at the NHL um, mm-hmm. and even USA Hockey. So... I think it was June. I'm losing track of the months now. Uh, USA Hockey actually invited us out, and and I laughed with a, a number of people to their World Congress. USA Hockey is really white. Like, <laughs> it's, okay, let me back up and say USA Hockey is uh, really leads to kind of youth hockey across the country. It's a great organization, but they are now they're ha- they're dealing with issues of diversity, inclusion, and they're. Sp- the the professional sport probably has to interact with that a little less so, right? right? So we actually came in in New Jersey and had a conversation, a really great conversation with coaches, administrators, parents about some of the challenges of diversity in youth hockey and how do they, they really want to have the conversation and figure out, okay, now how do we actually address this? And then that led to USA Hockey asking us to come out to their World Congress and speak to a lot of their um, club leaders across the country. Same issues. They're seeing diversity. How do you get from diversity to inclusion? And how do you begin to address the challenges that come with it? Because there are challenges that come with it. I mean, baseball is no day at the beach either. You, uh, you know, I mean, you could almost argue that with hockey, you don't have a lot of black players, so the talent pool, blah, 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 blah. Baseball is different. It's been here a long time, and, and you know, I just know – you know, I guess uh, the commissioner is on the board or somebody. But, I mean, baseball is no day at the beach either. It almost seems almost, uh, uh, what's the word, I don't know, a stubborn resistance or something. But uh, how do you crack that code? That is actually it's, it's a great question. Someone asked me, and, and 
to tie in one of your questions, uh, Whitney, one of the greatest challenges is that everybody is not ready to have these difficult conversations. And we are dealing with influential and powerful enough people that until they are ready to have the the difficult conversations, it, it, it cannot, it can't be forced by us. Now, sometimes circumstance, right, when we talk about Colin and kneeling, will force people into conversations that they were not ready for and may not want have wanted to have. And so the biggest challenge is engaging those that think they don't need to have the conversation yet. And keeping the relationship going and preparing because the reality is something is going to happen that is going to require the conversation. Mm -hmm. Hey, Ms. Burford. Uh, Nathan Easington. Um, uh, speaking of kneeling, I was just curious if you think we've moved past kneeling because recently Jay Z said that we've moved past kneeling, and I was wondering if you agree or do you think it still has a place in um, kind of social justice according to sports? I I absolutely think it still has a place, and I and I understood the um, I believe because I haven't talked to him about it, I haven't talked to him about anything. But I believe I understood the intent of Jay-Z's comment, though. Listen, I think this issue of racial discrimination, social injustice is complex. And one of the mistakes I think people make is we'd like to we'd like to think we can come up with solutions that are simplistic. Um, And so I think there is absolutely space for protest. And I think there is space for programming. And I think there is space for intervention. We're not. We're not going to unpack this problem, this complex problem, with a singular, simple solution. And so I think it is for people to empower themselves to do the thing that is going to have the greatest impact. And that that change is based on individual. I I also, I don't have a problem with Jay-Z partnering with the NFL because I think Jay-Z is going to have the greatest impact in that way. And, And I think the people that believe they should protest in a visible way and it sheds light on the op- on the issue are having the greatest impact on that way. So I, I don't think the time has passed, but I do think people have to make sure they're sitting in the, the right seat on the bus and doing the thing that has the greatest impact. Do you think he misspoke? I mean, in other words, I guess some people say the, the problem with, quote-unquote, celebrities and, you know, getting into you know, joining quote activism and that's another question of what exactly is is tweeting activism is no. wearing a t-shirt activism I mean, what's you know when you look at like Selma and all that with water hose I mean it, but, but my point though is that you know when you have a guy like Jay-Z and you know again celebrities and then they say well we're past the thing of kneeling well unfortunately he's a celebrity everybody knows him uh, do you think he misspoke I know you said you, you don't think he meant what he or he, maybe he mis, you know, misarticulated but what do you think of when you got somebody like that saying we're past celebrity, then here's Colin Kaepernick mm-hmm. still not having a job. Mm-hmm. Does that do more harm? Did, did, do, do you do more harm than good? Um, do I think he misspoke? That It's a hard question to answer because here's – I like when people speak from truth. And I think what he was doing in that moment was speaking from truth. Mm-hmm. I, I think that many of us but his can say, reality of exactly truth. His, his truth, truth. Yeah. right? His I, I really think he was speaking from his truth, and I think all of us could actually relate in that every single person involved in activism, we reach a point of frustration, and we say, 
this does not matter. Right. It does not have an impact. What matters is X or Y or Z. And so I, I do think that he was speaking that truth of if if what we're really concerned about is Colin not having a job, what we probably need to do is have people in positions of power that would assure that Colin had a job. Right. Right. So I, I think he is speaking from his truth. Right. Do I think, yes, he's such a powerful voice that do I think that what he said could be used to undermine other people's true actions? Absolutely. And, you know, I I don't give leaders a pass, but I do say leadership is hard. It is it is hard to be human and to be perfect and be spot on in your messaging every time out, right? And so, yes, he his his words have the power to be used to undermine other people. But I, I don't think his goal was to undermine anybody. I, I think right. he was really speaking his truth, which is, dude, if you really want to change the situation, somebody on the other side that makes hiring decisions needs to be the person that would step up and hire Colin. Right, right, right. And, and the reality is that, I, I guess what you were saying earlier, is that when we get into these discussions, it's, it's like there's there's one way to do things. I mean, you need people yeah. inside, outside. Uh, you, you need multifaceted approaches uh, to things. Hey, thanks for being on the show. This is Arthur, and my question is... On the RISE website, under the What We Do section, is Critical Conversations. So what kind of conversations will you be facilitating this year? Um, one of our most important critical conversations, we've had, we have a smaller, more intimate conversation that Bill took part in with a number of NFL executives, players, former players, and important people in the media. And then we also had a larger critical conversation around athlete activism with Dee Haslam, who is one of the owners of the, the Browns, uh, Ricardo from the Atlanta Falcons. And so our focus there actually was more on, on athlete activism as it's connected to, um, justice, social justice reform. Uh, we haven't yet decided what our focus in Miami at the next Super Bowl will be. Um, but as you can imagine, we've got some, we've got some options in front of us. Um, and a lot of times, quite honestly, Arthur, without critical conversations, we're being called in when an organization is grappling with something that has happened. And so that will lead what the conversation is about. But I should say that our approach is mostly we really believe and I I almost thought about not using not sharing this quote because I think people will run with it. But uh, Audra Lord, she has that quote about the master's tools will never will never dismantle the master's house. And that's the part of the quote that most people know. But the, the bottom part of that quote is she says, I urge each one of us here to reach down into that deep place of knowledge inside herself and touch that terror and loathing of any difference that lives there. See whose face it wears. So we always actually begin with that when we have critical conversations, they start with let's let's do the introspection. Let's talk about identity. Get that person to look within themselves. What do you fear? What is that difference that's driving you? And then we move to examining the situation. And then we move to uh, potential solutions because we're looking to always not only educate but to empower. Um, you know, uh, Stephen Roth, let's, you know, 
Let's talk about the elephant in the room. Yeah, well, no, you know, <laughs> we knew the elephant was over there. We said, well, let's let the elephant get a drink of water and had to go to the bathroom and all that. But, but um, what, what about Steve Ross? I mean, uh, last uh, month or whatever, I guess the first big yep. thing happened when uh, he was given a, um, uh, a reception uh, out of the Hamptons for, for uh, POTUS 44. And, uh, 45, right? 45, POTUS 45. Oh, sorry, Barack. Potus forty five. Forty four wouldn't have been a problem. Forty four would have been great. <laughs> I want but but so he was, he was given a, a, a thing for, for uh, Trump, and just all hell broke broke loose. Uh, first, what was your reaction when I, I guess you knew about it, you learned about it? Did you say, "Oh, fuck, here we go"? Uh, yeah. So um, my first reaction was I I will say like um, just my stomach dropped, mm-hmm. and I I. One thing I thought of was I knew this was just the beginning Mm -hmm. of what was going to be bad. The question is how long is the bad run and what is going to be the impact? Um, And and quite honestly, because I'm building a relationship with Steve, you know, my question, my first question was why? I, I, I think unlike many, I have the ability to sit down and ask him why and try to understand um, the decision. And so... Um, what did he say? Was that, uh, was that a phone conversation? Did you fly directly to Miami? <laughs> oh, well, he was in New York, and I went to his office. Okay. And we spoke quite a lot that entire week. One, I think, you know, Steve is pragmatic, and he he did what, quite honestly, has almost always been done, which is the truth of the matter is business people, top business people in this country... Talk to politicians, right? right? Like it actually, right. you know what I mean. In that instance, we were okay. It was that next step of when he was asked to, to host the event. So, in many ways, he, a part of him made a decision that was not unlike decisions he had made in the past. Steve is the first to say, "I gave more money to Democrats last year." You know, it's it's a it's a part of a way of him being a businessman and doing business. I, you know, he and I talked about privilege. I am not sure. In fact, I will say I am sure he was in many ways surprised by some of the response. And I I think it is a point of his privilege that he he did not before this fully understand how so many feel about this particular president. You know, as as I said it, I think because Steve is male, straight, white, and well off, I, I don't think he experiences Donald Trump as the predator mm. that many people who do not share those qualities experience him as. Mm. And so it's, you know, listen, Roz does a lot of work in the privilege space, and this was one of those times to sit and talk with him because I, I'm not sure without that privilege he wouldn't have seen how visceral the response would be yeah because yeah, he's got a long history of supporting education oh health, absolutely youth football he found he, he founded rise and he was just inducted into the national football foundation leadership hall of fame um but you know he's gotten a lot of platform yes. from uh, uh kenny Steele's about hosting you know, the fundraiser and, and 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 all that kind of stuff you know uh when you had that conversation with him uh a did you ever think about resigning and did he consider maybe not hosting the fundraiser 
what was his direct response? What was the bottom line finally? Yeah. I I think, of course, the thought crossed my mind, but actually once I spoke to him, it didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, Steve is a champion in this space, and in, in my mind, he continues to be a champion in this space. Once I had the conversation, I wasn't thinking about resigning. Now, if I walked in that office and he just was, you know, he just thought Donald Trump and, and right. he and we weren't having honest conversations, then maybe I would have had come to a different conclusion. But the truth of the matter is this made me, and I, you know, I said this to my staff, this made me think it's time for us to double, triple down, right? If we step back and we stop, the very issues that we're seeking to fight, they win, um, and so one of the things Steve and I share, because I'm not most of those things I um, ticked off about him, is that we both, this concept of winning and yeah. and not not being beat, it drives us. You know, and I felt like this is us, one of those times. Us, us, as a people or us as an organization? Or us? I, I would say that was a personal decision, so I would say me. <laughs> um, I am... I'm not going to be beat at this, right? Like I am, I'm not going to give in and I'm not going to stop. And so I I came to that conclusion and, but did the thought cross my mind? Yes, it really was contingent, I think, on my conversation with Steve. But I just feel like, you know, there's work to be done. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of, a lot of people are asking us to do the work and we have a lot of plans about things that people aren't even asking for yet. So Mm. on the other hand, Jay-Z has really used his platform to address racial injustice. The war on drugs, uh, Trayvon Martin, the suicide of Khalif Browder. Uh, he's teamed up with Meek Mills and Van Jones to launch the Reform Alliance, yep. uh, which addresses what he calls outdated laws that perpetuate injustice. You know, start with probation, parole. Yep. So then, that, say all that to say, you know, you team up with NFL, you don't consult Kaepernick uh, or or push getting a job back in the NFL. So again, I mean, all this is just to say these contradictions that all of us have to deal with. I mean, you know, I mean, I went on, you know, I was talking about, oh, you know, Jay-Z is, you know, you can't prostitute yourself. And then I say, well, what happens if you say, well, yeah, Roden, you know, you you got this great initiative, the Roden Fellows, and, you know, the NFL is helping support that. So do you, are you going to resign? Are you going to, are you going to say, listen, we don't want your support anymore. Don't send it. Um, Equinox, you know, People start resigning. I mean, some people dropped their thing from Equinox. Some did. Some didn't. So I guess all this is to say, if you're, I guess that's the definition of wealth. Power can can support you and screw mm-hmm. you. Yep. At the same time, it make you make the choice. So I guess you just, in, in your position, whether it's Bloomberg or Steve Ross, you always have to keep the big picture in mind. So what's the big picture? To me, the big picture is this common good. We've got to do some work as a country on two fronts. One, defining the common good. And two, we have to do some really hard work, I think, at saying what are we willing to give up? What are we willing to sacrifice to achieve the common good? I think the biggest challenge we have in front of us is that this definition of common good probably will mean that some people that have different forms of privilege will have to live, move, and experience life differently so that everybody can have those forms of privilege. And we we can act like that's just right and that's what we should do. But when it feels like 
you are losing something that you have. We have to understand that that that's a human response. And so how do we, what gets humans past that response and what gets us to the common good? With a position like this, I think the common good is defined by a society that does not function with racial discrimination. Mm-hmm. I, I think that the common good is defined by a society that doesn't allow social injustice and more when you see racial discrimination and if you see social injustice, you address it and you don't accept it and you don't write it off and you don't explain it away. Mm-hmm. I, I obviously think those are parts of the common good, but I actually think there's a national conversation to be had. I guess when, when you're used to privilege, equality feels like oppression. It, is, it does. And that's, what, and that's what, you know, but, but I just want... See, you said that there are more haves, more people of but, color and women in yeah. the have pool. See, I well, I, I think I mean this is another podcast, by the way. But, but, <laughs> but it seems to me that when you drive, it seems like there are more. The pool of have-nots is increasing, you know. But when you put someone like Jay Z, who at the time of his life was part of the have-nots. The problem is becomes, and, and you've seen as you move to black folks who live in the Hamptons, and there are a lot of black folks who are living deliciously. That's what I mean. And so the problem is when you start becoming part of it, living deliciously, all of a sudden, you know, you become part of the people who are defending the status quo. Exactly. Right? That's what I mean. We now have more people of color and right. more women uh, that have privilege, right? Uh, and it is right, complicating right, right. what might have been. I see what you're saying. It, it is complicating what might have been cleaner, easier decisions to make in the past. Right. I'm not saying I've crunched numbers, and I know that for sure, but I do think that that that's part of the challenge in front of us. Yes. Yeah. So, Miss Diane, I was wondering what's next for Rise. Um, we are really focused on who are we educating. Again, one of the things that's come up this year is right now the vast majority of our education is happening with youth, and we love that. Uh, the Rams host a 10-week program, Rise with the Rams. The Seahawks have just signed on for theirs. We're still committed to that work. My goal is in 2020 that we're doing that with at least 5 to 10 professional teams of various sports. On the basketball front, we uh, we have Building Bridges with Basketball, and we're seeking to expand that. And that, too, is a youth-based program with law enforcement. So what's next for RISE is going deeper um, in our signature programs that impact youth and teens around these issues of uh, race and identity. And I will say what's next for RISE is we are really going to fine-tune our education and empowerment in the adult arena. Uh, we do quite a lot colleges already. Um, super excited about that. One of our goals this year was to increase that 40%, and we've hit that. Uh, we just launched back to school with Michigan State, University of California, Berkeley, Georgetown. Over the summer, we did things with the ACC and the Big 12 at their SAC meetings. That's the Student Athletic Advisory Committee meetings. So we're going to double down on what we do really well, but we also are going to craft more of our work to address uh, more adults and executives in the sports community. So do you have any plans to put any of these programs in at possibly HBCUs around the country? 
Uh, we would love that. We had something. I don't want to out anybody. We actually had an event scheduled at a HBCU. And one of the unfortunate consequences of Steve's decision to have the fundraiser is that that school canceled that interaction with us. We have been working with certain partners who have felt comfortable, uncomfortable after this decision. And so we would love that. We would welcome that. We're still working on that. But we have, hit a, you know, a bit of a hip, hiccup. Listen, uh, Diane, this has been wonderful. Uh, this has been great. Um, we want to end the conversation. I think three of the fellows that come up with this idea of asking each of our guests, because uh, we tend to have these kind of conversations, let's end it on a high note. So I, I'm not sure which of our fellows invented this segment, but we want to ask you some uh, trivia questions. I know somebody will say, damn, Bill, you know, you talk about all these problems of the world. You want to end it with, but that's okay. Absolutely. That's okay. Yes, it's all good. we got to get through. It's all good. <laughs> we got it's to get good. through. If you look at our answers, I'm sure I think about that, our slave answers. I'm sure they were sometimes that they joked around because I guess at some point you had to laugh at this stuff to you have to get to. through you the day. To. You have to. <laughs> you know, because it doesn't Anyway, so who's going to take us home with, uh, with these trivia questions? I got it. Okay. This is Whitney again. <laughs> so um, we kind of do a little something called this or that. So um, you can either pick this or you can pick that. So you're from Brooklyn, so we wanted to get a little bit of the take on some of the talent from there. Yeah. So MC Light or Little Kim? Light. Light is a rock. What you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, Talib Kweli or Most Deaf? That's hard. I mean, because of my age, I'll probably say Most Deaf. His some of his songs and in, in my <laughs> growing up, that's 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 where I am. But that that's a hard one. Okay. Okay. Um, and the last one, Jizza or Jay Z? Uh, Jay, definitely Jay Z. We are. Uh, I was raised not too far from Marcy Projects when Jay came out, closer to Biggie, but we're really on pretty close sections of Brooklyn. It was it was just everything. So Jay Z, Nina Simone or Aretha Franklin? Okay. Oh, I don't know if I could even pick between those two. I know. Neither from Brooklyn. I know, but I mean they're wonderful. Nina Simone or Aretha Franklin. Yeah. If you were going on a desert island and you, you you only had two minutes to go to your house and pick out collections and they said you could only bring Nina Simone or Aretha Franklin to take with you on this desert isle, would you choose Aretha Franklin or Nina Simone? Aretha Franklin. Rocksteady has gotten me through some hard, hard moments. <laughs> Not young, gifted, and black. That was a good one. But sometimes when all the world is crashing down, if I could just hear Aretha say, rock steady, baby. <laughs> I love that. I can do it. That's great. Oh, our guest has been, uh, oh, who's our guest? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the middle name. What your name is? What, what, what's your name? Uh, <laughs> Diane Billings Burford. Oh, but they, that, that's great. Rock steady. Rock steady. I, 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 I love that. Our guest has been uh, Diane Billings Burford. I was executive director, still the executive, still, still standing, and still the undisputed heavy, heavyweight undisputed. champion of the world. That's right, Diane. Thank you so much. It's really been tremendous. Thank you guys so much for having me. <laughs> Good luck on your years, guys. Good luck this year. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thank you.
30 for 30 podcast and The Undefeated teamed up to produce a spectacular five-part podcast on the undoing of Donald Sterling. NBA insider Ramona Shelburne covered the debacle when it all unraveled in 2014, so she was a perfect person to narrate this series. Each episode goes into incredible detail about Sterling's racism, how the players and the league responded, and how his affairs and his wife affected his business. Shelburne covers the NBA for ESPN, and she contributes to a number of ESPN platforms like Sports Center and The Jump. We're really happy and honored to have Ramona on the show today. Hey, Ramona, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Appreciate you having me. Yeah, no, it's really great. It's really great. Um, you know, before we uh, discuss the podcast, how, uh, mm-hmm. you know, these, these fellows are on a, this is a year-long fellowship. How would you suggest uh, that they take advantage of a fellowship? Knowing what you know now, knowing uh, all the stuff that you've accomplished in the industry, um, how would you uh, suggest that they take advantage of, of a fellowship? Well, I think, you know, to me, the most important thing is to get good at what you're doing, okay? So, um, you know, it took me a while. Like, I didn't, I didn't know how to write um, when I first started doing it. Um, and so you have the opportunity within a fellowship to have some of the best people in the industry, like, teach you how to do it and, and talk you through it. And by the way, they're not just available to you while they're, you're in the fellowship. Most people... If you develop long-lasting bonds, um, and if you develop a real relationship, they'll help you well beyond a fellowship. They'll, you know, you just stay in touch, and that's that's part of this industry too. Is like you just stay in touch with a lot of people, and like that's how I do it as a reporter. You know, you you, you don't just like call people when you need them for a story. You call people all the time and always check in, um, and so you just have, you know, I, I would say my, my my two pieces of advice are get as good at your craft as you possibly can now because. When you when you start applying for jobs or when you get those opportunities, like when the door opens, you better be ready to walk through it. Like if you get a if you get an assignment for a certain website or newspaper or whatever publication is, and like that's your big chance with them, you better do a good job because if you don't, they're not going to call you again. And right now is your time to like hone your craft. And at least for me, like I had to. Um, I I was young, like, I remember writing for the Stanford Daily, and, like, I mean, some of my early stories are so funny, like, I was, like, I would, I think I would take, like, Stuart Scott cliches and put them in to my leads, like, so I would something like say, on paper, the Stanford women's gymnastics team, uh, you know, shouldn't have had a chance against LSU, but they don't play the games on paper. <laughs> like, I would do stuff like that, right? <laughs> so, um, I think that's probably a lead of mine that actually says that. Um, but you have to learn that stuff. You have to, like, learn how to find your own voice. And the only way to learn is by doing it. Hi, Ramona. This is Whitney. So you hosted the or co-hosted the radio show Beetle and Shelburne. So I was wondering what's the biggest difference between producing the Sterling Affairs and co-hosting these shows? Yeah, that's a good question, because, you know, when I went into the podcast, I thought, okay, you know, I'm a writer, I do long form, and I also do radio, I did the show with Beatle for um, for a while, and then I do radio in Los Angeles, like, all the time, I'm always, um, I'm always on on ESPN LA, it's like, it's the 710 station out here, um, and I thought, okay, those two things, you put them together, that's kind of like this, right? <laughs> 
<laughs> Not exactly. <laughs> it's so much harder um, to do this narrative style documentary. It's you know it's kind of like writing a screenplay. It's kind of like doing a um, a documentary screenplay. And one of the things that um, I always say in every interview that I do is it's really not just me. I had a whole team of people who I was working with because like I don't think I could have done. There, there's no way I could have written all that myself. Um, I don't know the format. Like it's just a completely new format for me. So I would. I would write stuff, and they would kind of, like, go through and adapt what I would write into some more screenplay form, and then I would go back in and then write over the top of it again, you know, and, like, that was kind of how we'd have to go back and forth on it because, you know, the way that I would write a long-form scene or a long-form story is, is just different than you would narrate and tell it in an audio documentary. And then once we would have scripts, okay, and this is, like, Julia um, Lowry Henderson was my main producer. She's she also did the Bikram series for ESPN last year, which is amazing. If you haven't listened to that, go go please just go listen to it. It's really good. Um, she is like a master of the craft, right? I just kind of learned to defer to her, and it was interesting because, like, I, I think I said a few times, um, you know, this is it's a new experience for me because, like, my career is supposed to be like I'm supposed to be a good writer, I'm supposed to be a long form writer, and a lot of times, you know, it's just you and your editor um, out on an island doing your doing your thing. Um, but this is like, I had teammates who were like, like as good at me and what they do, that's what I do at what I do, right? And I just had to, it's kind of like being back on the softball team where I'm just like, you know, where you're cheering for Jessica Mendoza, hey, Jess, you know, get a hit here. Like, like you have to put your, you have to put your trust in other people. Like, there's a lot of parts of doing an audio documentary. Like, I don't know anything about sound mixing. <laughs> I don't know anything about composing. And we had people who did the music for this. Hannes Brown, he's awesome. Okay, um, there was David Herman, who's a mixer, a sound editor. I don't even know what they do, but I, I know they make it sound great, right? And you just kind of have to like put that in their their hands and learn that it's a whole big production team. And and in addition to that, there's all these other story editors who came in. Um, one of them, which is who's like my really good friend and, and one, one of my favorite editors of all time, is Raina Kelly from The Undefeated. Um, Raina was really important in this because at some point it was like the NBA playoffs, and we were really going back and forth on draft after draft after draft of each episode. And Raina would, I, I just didn't have the bandwidth to be covering games and writing stories and doing sideline radio like I do. Um, and go through at, at draft after draft after draft. And so I had to, like, really trust Raina to, you know, to make sure that this is still in my voice or there were parts of it that, like, she knows what parts I would be upset if we cut, you know. And she's also a trained playwright who is just an amazing wordsmith and, and editor. So she just knows this format. And I would say that's the biggest difference is that, you know, you don't – it's not just showing up and talking to a mic. It's like an entire team of people that you, that you work with. Hey, Ramona, it's uh, Nate here. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's Nate here. But I'm just wondering, um, do you think Donald Sterling was an outlier, or are there other, like, sports coaches similar to him? Because, I mean, we have, like, James Dolan of the Knicks. Like, obviously, he's not on the level of Sterling, but he has, like, come up in the media, especially in the last year, about him just being a poor owner and, like, him obviously not being liked by a lot of people. So I was wondering if Sterling was an outlier, or do you think there are other sports owners that kind of emulate what he's what he got mixed for i think there are other owners with similarly um icky 
personal lives or business practices that if we did the same kind of deep dive investigations into, we would find stuff that was, that they would never want anyone to see. Um, and uh, I don't know if I would put Dolan in that category. He might just be a bad owner. Okay. I, I've never heard he's a bad, like, he, you know, him being racist or anything. I've never heard of him like mistreating players the way personally, the way Donald Sterling did. Like, no one's ever told the story about him coming to the locker room and ogling players, right? I've never, that's on that level. He just, you know, doesn't create a great culture around the Knicks and has not reacted very well to criticism um, from Charles Oakley or fans or whatever. And, like, on some level, like, I don't know, I guess I get some of that. You know, I'm not excusing Dolan's behavior, but, like, you know, when somebody comes up to you on the street and says you should sell the team, like, I'm sure that, that, strikes chord with him, right? Um, yeah. So, like, I, I don't think there's, I, I don't know if Dolan's the right example, but I, I think there are other owners in basketball, not not, too, not as many, but I, I two or three come to mind, um, that if you dug into their business practices and personal lives, um, we would find some stuff. Maybe not on the level of this. Um, I think definitely across all sports, absolutely. Like, if you include the NFL, Major League Baseball, hockey like you know there's generally speaking if you just if you just do the math there's probably two or three owners in each league that that have a lot to hide and um we should be looking into them but uh it's it's hard because you know like i cover the nba and i and i know if we dug into two or three two or three owners i think we would find some stuff but Somebody asked me the other day on twitter zach Lowe and i were talking about this on his podcast and like well why don't you guys name names and I said, well, it's just not responsible. Like, you can't just name a name and toss something out there and cast aspersions on somebody unless you come correct with a big investigation and and documentation and evidence of what you're claiming. And so that's, that's kind of on us in the media to go and make sure we do these types of investigations and make sure we do these types of, of stories. And I think, like, right now, we don't do enough of that in this industry. Like, we're, we're so obsessed with just covering the day-to-day and NBA transactions that – we don't spend enough bandwidth on covering what should be really important stories. I mean, the fact that the Dallas Mavericks and that workplace culture there existed for as long as it did without any major news organization doing an investigation until Sports Illustrated came along. It's pretty staggering, right? It was, you know, 10, 20 years of that. Um, and it, it, it took Sports Illustrated, who had a reporter who was, like, totally focused just on that for quite a while and tracking down all those leads and reporting it out to write that story that finally exposed it and made them make some changes. So I, I, I hope, you know, in this era where everybody's obsessed with clickbait, I hope we start to get back to some of our journalistic ideals. Yeah, that's actually a great point. Our guest is uh, NBA insider Ramona Shelburne. Uh, Ramona, how did this um, uh, uh, come about? I mean, how did the, the idea for this um, uh, Sterling podcast how was it introduced, and how did it come about? Oh, this was um, when I was reporting it at the time in 2014. I always knew it was way bigger than what I was doing in that moment. It felt like a big story. It felt like a movie. It felt like a mini series or a book or something like that. And so I would just pitch this to anybody who would listen. I actually wrote up a treatment. <laughs> it was like, this is a big old story, and we need to do the big old story, right? Like somehow, some way, we're going to do this. And it took me a, a couple of years of talking to people. Everybody agreed with me when I would pitch it, but they didn't know 
what format it would take. Because generally speaking, we take our time with 30 for 30s. Like, you let, like, 10, 15 years pass. And I was just like, no, we got to do this now. Right. Um, you know, Donald's in his 80s, all the people involved. And plus, it's a hot story. Like, it, you know, let's do this. So um, I think it was Adam Newhouse. He's, like, ESPN's director of development. We brought up the idea of doing it as a podcast as sort of like, okay, you know, you you have all these ideas for it, but, like, a podcast is a really good thing that you can get into right now. It was kind of a new initiative that ESPN was doing in that a new medium, right? Like, they had just started doing 30 for 30 podcasts, and it was something that, like, I had a background, obviously, in radio, and I have a background in long form that we thought I would adapt well to. And so, um, you know, they talked me into doing it as a podcast, and I'm glad they did. It was just hard because you know, you, you realize as you're doing it, it's not, it's not just about writing the story. A lot of these people, even though I know the story, I have to get them to actually tell the story because it's audio. You can't just write it for them. You have to have clips of people saying it. And like my interviews from five years ago that I may have recorded on my cell phone, you can't just use that. Like you have to have high quality sound and you have to get a special interview and you have to get people to talk to you again. And, um, that was a really, that was a big challenge. That was, several months of of getting um, comfortable in that new format because when you do audio, like, it's not enough to just, like, just talk to people and ask them questions. You've got to get them to tell the story. It's all about the sound and the bites. Um, and so I had to get good at that those kind of interviews, too. Hey, Ramona, this is Arthur. Uh, in producing the Sterling Affairs, did you learn anything new about Sterling, or was it mostly familiar since you had covered him in 2014? Um, yeah, more, I think I learned more of the details. Um, like, I think I knew he had other affairs, but we really dove into that and found how similar the playbook this this unfolded with V had unfolded many times over the past. So the thing that was different was, you know, we had TMZ that would run that audio. Like, they didn't, you know, in the, in the past when he would have other issues with mistresses, there was no place for it to go. And I went into the courts and they would settle and we wouldn't really hear about it. Because the, the the women would usually sign non-disclosure agreements as part of the settlement, so I think I, I knew some of what was beneath the iceberg. Right, we, we saw the tip of the iceberg. We knew the details would fill in. I think the part that I the part that I was like really interested in, and if I had a if I had chance to sit down with Donald, like if he would have agreed to this interview, which by the way we tried multiple times, he would always say no. And Shelley was like, he doesn't want to have anything ever to do with this and, and talk about any of this again. Okay. You know, um, I would want to know about his childhood. I think a lot of this probably comes from whatever happened to him in childhood because a key part of this story is him trying to reinvent himself after he grew up in poverty. Like, he grew up with no money in a part of East L.A. where – he was um, discriminated against because his family was Jewish. He had to get up at 2 o'clock in the morning and go work down at the market selling fruit with his dad. I mean, he, you know, I know at some point his parents get divorced, and it's a messy divorce. And then after that, he doesn't really talk about his mom to almost anybody else. He, the woman his dad remarries, you know, most people just assume that that's his mom. Like, I don't think people knew that he had a different mom. Um, a lot of people we talked to about that, right? I think there's something within his past that made him want to really change his past and run from it and hide it and bury it because, um, you know, he changes his name, but it's not just the name change. It's the sort of denying of where you came from. Like he, he had said to 
people that, you know, this publicist of his that we talked to, he, he, the publicist told us, you know, he used to enter, tell people he was from an English country estate, right? Like, what? You're not from an English country estate, you're from East L.A., you know? And that sort of denial of your past feels like where a lot of the insecurity comes from, where a lot of the type of behavior comes from, um, that I think is at the core of whatever, whatever his, whatever he became, whatever you want to, however you want to term him or describe him, like there's something at the core of that. So I guess that's really what, um, I learned, but also want to, I would still want to learn more about, and there's just not that many people who know it was, you know, it's probably a really only Donald, maybe his sister, if she would want to talk, although we've heard, you know, she doesn't want to talk either. It, it's, um, that, that'd be what I'd want to look into. Hi, Ramona. This is Whitney again. So um, throughout the podcast, there was a lot of, um, you know, audio from Donald's wife, Shelly. So um, mm-hmm. I was wondering if Donald wouldn't participate in the podcast, why did Shelly? So I had maintained a relationship with Shelly for like the last four or five years um, because I knew I was going to do something big. And Shelly was such a fascinating character to me. And there's a part of me that's like, I just, you know, when you have these people and characters that you come across, you just want to keep diving in deeper and deeper and deeper. And I thought this was really at the core of the story because she's the one who sells the team out from under him and gets him declared mentally incapacitated. And then in the course of me writing about this story, um, you know, I got to know her a little bit. We've been to you know, a few lunches. We sort of know each other a little more social. I see her at Clipper games all the time. She doesn't go as much as she used to, but she's still there, you know, enough to notice, okay? She sits in those courtside seats. Um, and I just thought she was, I just want to keep knowing more because she's the real conundrum, right? Like, how does she end up back with him at the end? How did she tolerate him for 60 years? How complicit is she in all of their business practices and, and, and you know, how, how much do you hold her accountable for what he does, what he says, um, and, uh, and, you know, she's obviously part of it as well. She's named in those housing discrimination suits, and there's video of her, you know, seemingly posing as a housing inspector. So I thought, you know, she's, this is what I told you about, you know, as a, as a source, like, or as, as somebody that you know is interesting and you know is key to your story, like, there's a way to maintain that relationship where you have this open line of communication, but I knew in order to, you know, find out the answers, that I wanted about their personal life. Like, how does she explain herself? Like, you don't just get that by getting her to agree to an interview. She probably would have just turned me down. I know she turns down every other interview. It's because she knows me and because we've, we've, we've talked a lot about this over the years. And I think she has an understanding that this was a very public story that she stepped into um, the spotlight on. And, I, you know, even though I think she'd probably want to retreat from the spotlight and have no one ever hold her accountable or bother her again. I think she understands the historic nature of it. Um, and I also think that she under, she, she liked the fact that I listened to her. I know that sounds kind of silly, but, but like, you know, most people didn't, didn't take her, take her point of view into consideration when they were reporting on the story. And I, I recognized pretty early on that she was going to play a major part in this because she was able to sell the team on her own. Yeah. It most definitely seemed like you had an, an interesting like connection with her and you could see that all the way up until the very last episode when you had asked her you know about the flowers and then she was like oh they're from donald and i don't know like i I just kind of feel that you were like whoa like what you know so that was really great in all honesty 
Thank you. Yeah, it's interesting reporting on it because, you know, sometimes these characters, it's like you see them as characters sometimes and not people, and you're just really interested mm-hmm. in the story and not necessarily exactly the reality in front of you. And that was a good that was a good check for me that, like, okay, the story five years ago was one thing, and the one you were reporting on five years ago was one thing, but, like, what's happened since is also part of it, even though it doesn't necessarily seem to jive with what you reported five years ago. I mean, she, people change, and she just sort of changed back. Like, she went back to the role she had been in for their 60-year marriage, even though she has this, like, moment where she has this break from him, which we get into in the podcast of why she has this break from him, and she said, you know, she has the petition for divorce, she's really hurt, and she says she decries what he says, she says it's awful, and then over the last five years, she's just sort of started to change back. And it's really, um, it's really uh, um, an interesting conundrum, you know. Like, how does she, how does she fall back? She has this, you know. I was right there with her. Like, okay, you, you know, you, you did the right thing after sixty years of doing of being complicit, and then now there's sort of an erosion to it. And like, it's not a clean storyline. It's just not a clean, you know, clean story arc. But that's why this is reality and not, you know, work of fiction. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about uh, player activism, you know, quote-unquote, that's another podcast, but how did this change what we call activism, or at least players kind of coming out of them themselves mm-hmm. and, and you know, uh, taking a, a role in um, what, what we call activism? But how did that change? I mean, honestly, I think it changed it so fundamentally, we can't remember what it was like beforehand, but... Like to you know, in the, one of the one of the main scenes of the podcast, we we show Blake Griffin this video of him at one of Donald Sterling's white parties, right, where everyone had to wear white and he wore black. It was like you know, there's this video of Blake being sort of led around as this show horse, and it's super uncomfortable. It's really hard to watch Blake being subjected to this kind of treatment. And um, you know, I we showed all that, and it's like. I remember asking him, Blake, who was going to tell Donald Sterling this was cringeworthy? And he goes, no one. He was the owner. I mean, he was the one who signed our checks. And he goes, and it wasn't just me being a rookie. It was, you know, we had some proud veterans on those teams. We had Grant Hill. We had Chauncey Billups, Chris Paul. Like, these are these are veterans in this league who know how awful this is. And yet they didn't feel like they could say anything. And, you know, nowadays, this would not stand. I mean, this was so different now because if somebody ever did that even once, they would, that video would leak. Um, players would, would decry it on social media. They would do interviews where they would speak out. And I think that, that would, there would be a punishment. There would be a suspension. There would be some kind of justice after some, you know, the, some of those locker room incidents. I mean, things like with Baron Davis where he's getting heckled by Sterling on the court. I mean, these, it's just the league is so different. Like, players would speak out against it. the time players for whatever reason were afraid to and that's why it's just it, to me it's just so different um and it's because guys like lebron james stepped in front of a microphone and said there's no place for donald sterling in this league like at the time that was a revolutionary statement that was like a player who's not even on his team speaking out and saying that an owner has to go that doesn't happen in the, before this you know it, it took something this egregious to get everybody mobilized to act. And I think, like, it's so fundamentally different now. Well, players always tell you what they think. They don't, they don't, there's a, there's a, there's a, we are not going to stay silent any longer 
on big issues like this. And, and if it wasn't for LeBron, I don't know how many people would have felt as comfortable speaking up. But like once LeBron spoke, everybody else felt empowered to speak. Yeah, I remember the only time I could think of that is remember uh, when Jordan, but it was private uh, player negotiations, mm-hmm. and he he uh, fired a yeah. shot at um, the Wizards uh, then owner, and he told he stood up and said, "Yeah, well, he yeah. yeah, said maybe you should just give up your team." And that was reported that was inside, but yeah. it was like shocking. But 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 you know, but shocking. Yeah, it was shocking. You know, but you, but you're. Uh, it's not like the NBA didn't know about this stuff. They didn't know about. You know, they didn't know about Sterling. Yeah, they knew, but you know, there's. I don't want to give them a pass, okay? Because they didn't try to get rid of him. Right. But they tried 30 years ago and failed. You know, they took him to. They they tried to to ban him, and then they ended up like having Alan Rothenberg come in and you know make nice with everybody. Um, and uh, you know, things really started to change. It, you know, for a little while, Alan kind of you know, cleaned everything up and, and it was okay again, but never, you know, still Sterling, still Sterling. Um, but the, the case ended up in, in court for like six, seven years. And then Sterling won, um, when he moved to Los Angeles, he does it in an unauthorized way. And he sues the NBA and Jerry Buss from the Lakers for a hundred million dollars. I mean, this is a guy who's extremely litigious. And, um, you know, if you come at Donald Sterling, you best not miss. Right, so I think the league kind of understood. Like, I don't know if they that they ever had any grounds that they felt would stand up in court in a long litigation with him. And I don't know if they had the stomach for it. But you know, they didn't have the stomach for it. They didn't have you know anything that was like a smoking gun like this kind of tape. But they also didn't try. And so I think that's where we that's where we got you know you can hold them accountable and you can say, come on, guys, like. You guys should have done more and should have tried at least. Hey, Ramona, it's uh, Nathan again. Uh, I'm just curious if you think his lifetime ban was too harsh. No, <laughs> not at all. I mean, I think like it was it, that was coming for a long time, and I think that like you know the, Adam Silver had to do that and then some um, because mm-hmm. people were not just people in the league, like the entire city of Los Angeles needed some justice. Like they they really like. I remember being here for Game Five, and it felt like the morning of the O.J. Simpson trial. It felt like the mm-hmm. ro- morning of the of the Rodney King trial, where we were waiting for the verdict, and and this idea of like, man, if this if if those police officers are not found guilty in the Rodney King verdict, like like there was going to be some there was going to be some riots. People were upset. Like if Adam Silver didn't come through and do that and go that far. I feel like there there could have been protests, there could have been violence in the city. Like that's how serious this felt um, that morning wow. in Game Five. I mean, there were people at City Hall, like ready to to storm City Hall. I mean, what does City Hall have to do with it? <laughs> you know, like he's he's a resident here, yeah. But people were angry. Like this was this was this is very emotionally charged. And so I thought this was about the he had to go. Adam Silver had to go as far as he did. Hey, Ramona, this is Arthur again. Um, you kind of mentioned in the podcast about when the tapes came out and how the Clippers had to play mm-hmm. the Warriors in the playoffs. Do you think the Clippers should have boycotted that game just because there was a lot of pressure for them? Um, I try not to tell people what to do. You know what I mean? Um, this was what was ever in their heart and, and how they felt. And they felt real strongly that they wanted to play in the face of it. Um, and so, you know, I think there's people on both sides who felt – who, uh, who felt really strongly, 
And, you know, we, we get into that in the podcast, right? Like, I, I, Mark Spears said he was crying, and he felt it was weak that they didn't protest. And there's a lot of players I talked to. Andre Godala still kind of regrets that, that they didn't protest, that they didn't boycott. But, um, but I also just think, like, as a reporter and in and something like this, like, I try not to tell people what to do. Like, I just think it's not me who was in that moment, in that story, and I wasn't um, – I wasn't one of the players, you know, and I don't have the same personal connection to it that Mark did. Um, he speaks about that very, very eloquently, I think, in the story. And so um, I don't know if they would have protested, if they would if they would have walked off the court and boycotted. I don't know that Adam Silver is able to act as their business partner in this. I don't, I don't know if they didn't if they didn't give Adam time to do the investigation and to do this. Like, and they protest the game, and then the rest of the league walks off the court, and and now the owners are threatened with a full-fledged player boycott. Like, I don't know if they're – I don't know how they react, you know, because they they all kind of work together behind the scenes on it and kept each other in check. I think that it allowed Adam to act and make sure all the owners were going to be on his side and not say anything, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, we just had uh... – um, the director of Rise on, and one of the things that comes up mm-hmm. um, is uh, is just how complex these relationships are. You know, it's just not one thing. If you have players and you're talking about salaries and checks and money and you know things that are likely going to mm-hmm. come up in, when they lock them out again, <laughs> you know that, that there's just more to consider than just the plain right and wrong. And, and I think the uh, podcast really touched on the complexities. Of, of all this stuff that it's just mm-hmm. not about, you know, it's just not about uh, boycotting, but there are repercussions, which I guess is why they call it sacrifice, <laughs> because you, you ignore the repercussions. Yeah. But I mean, it's, it's interesting, what, yeah. Bill, because it's like, we, you know, you think about the nature of protest and like, you know, are you protesting to say something is wrong? Are you protesting to, to get a specific reaction, to get a specific action taken or correction taken, justice served? Um, I mean, at the end of the day, justice was served, but it gets to be Adam Silver's moment, right? Adam Silver's to go bans him for life, not, you know, he gets, all, he gets a lot of the credit for it. I tried to give the players some credit because what they were saying and doing behind the scenes is part of the reason Adam was able to act as decisively as he did. Um, but I think that that's really, um, you know, that's, it's, it's just the fundamental nature of protest, right? That's what we would always talk about in the NFL. You know, the players were kneeling to protest police violence. Um, police brutality, but what was their goal? Like, was there an accountable measurement? Okay, if I see this, this, and this, I'll stop. I'll stop my protest. Or was it just to raise awareness of it? Um, and and I think that that is just it's a really interesting conversation to be had about when you protest. What do you want to have happen? Right? What do you? What would you? What would make you feel that your protest was successful? I think there's a lot more to mine on that subject, especially in this era now where we, we have a lot of protests in sports. We didn't used to have that, but, um, you know, you, you obviously covered some of the protests that we saw back in the 60s, right? And I, and I think that's, that, that should be in everyone's mind now as we, as we report on sports and, um, and the way athletes are speaking out on social issues. Yeah, yeah. Well, again, that's another podcast. But uh, <laughs> our, our guest has been uh, Ramona Shelburne, and uh, she's just uh, she's an NBA insider, but has just done an absolutely incredible, incredible uh, podcast on the Sterling affair. Uh, you've got to listen to it. Um, it's just really just tremendous work. Uh, I guess, what's next? When are you doing the next one? 
Oh, man, that's what everybody does. What do you got next? I, I, I mean, the, the truth is we probably could have done some more episodes on this one, right? right. Um, you need a story to rise to that level on, and hit all the right. hit all the marks, right, to, to do a real serialized story. Um, so there's a part of me that's like, I have a few ideas, but I don't know if it's big enough. Like, I feel like a couple of stories that I had worked on would, would lend themselves to a few episodes. I don't know about five. Um, maybe I should just do some more of this, right? <laughs> Keep it going, milk you know, it. Keep two, it two going. Episodes of this, right? Yeah. But it was really. Yeah, I don't know if you guys got ideas. Shoot, send them to me. <laughs> oh, they, oh, trust me, uh, they will. Thank you so much. This has been really tremendous. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for having me, guys. I enjoyed it. Okay. Yeah, Thank you so much. Uh, that's all we have time for today. If there's anything you'd like us to cover, or if you just want to leave us a comment, tweet us at the undefeated hashtag Rodenfellows. You can also contact us directly. I'm on Twitter at W.C. Roden. That's W-C-R-H-O-D-E-N. Hey, everyone. This is Whitney once again, and my Twitter handle is Wit underscore Bit 98. That's W-H-I-T underscore B-I-T 98. Hey, everyone. This is Arthur. You can follow me on Twitter at Crib underscore Arthur, spelled B-R-I-B-B-S underscore A-R-T-H-U-R. Hey, everybody, it's Nate Easington, and you can follow me at just that, and that's N-A-T-E-A-S-I-N-G-E-L-N. Hey, hey, everybody, that's all we have time for today, but thanks for listening to the Roden Fellows Podcast. Uh, this show is produced by the wonderful Aaron Mathewson. A special thanks to Tarika Foster-Brasby and the ESPN Digital Audio Content Team. I'm Bill Roden, and I've been your host. Get all of your HBCU 468 podcasts, as well as The Right Time with Bomani Jones, and Morning Roast by subscribing to The Undefeated on the Listen tab of the ESPN app.